Dispatches, a production of Blurb Inc., is an in-depth look at those living artistic lives. Each episode will feature photographs and audio interviews with narrative pioneers who have taken creativity and publishing in their own hands. From artists to authors, photographers to philosophers, Dispatches will reveal the faces and foundations of those who lead the creative way. Hey everyone, this is Dan with Blurb. I'm in Miami, Florida today with photographer Andrew Kaufman. How you doing today, Andrew? Good. Thanks for having me. This sounds like a well-rehearsed scene, but we literally sat down like eight seconds ago, and uh, I said, are you ready? And he was like, okay, whatever. So we're, uh, we're starting here. Why, why journalism? You come from a journalism background. What was it about journalism that intrigued you? Politics. I'm fascinated by world politics and governments and popular movements, and I think that's part of the history of the world, and I want to be there firsthand to witness those moments in my lifetime. You still intrigued as you were back? When did you start? What did you, when did you first pick up a camera? 1987. I graduated from high school in 87. Yes. <laughs> it was a quite a year. Miami Vice was still, still going, I think. Yeah, Vice was on until 89. Thank God. The world was a better place. So, 87, you picked up a camera. Right. Then I interned while in high school, and unbelievably enough, I was the college photographer of the year while in high school. Uh, then I went to study at Western Kentucky University and majored in photojournalism, minored in political science, art history. Jesus, Western Kentucky, what's that like? Uh, there was a, a assimilation period for me, for sure, being... Coming from Brooklyn. Brooklyn kid, uh, you know, and then my high school years in Fort Lauderdale, it definitely was... Uh, sort of an experience to say yeah, the least i can imagine but i look back on that time very fondly now and it taught me a lot and it was a good process are you still as intrigued by politics today because in the past 20 years of our lives we've had some pretty intriguing moments in politics are you is that still what's fueling you uh it does but i'm as equally interested now in the arts as in politics, and I think the arts has an impact on the public discourse, politics included. Where do you keep up with your uh, political news? What are some of the sites that you go to on a regular basis? Or the arts, what sites do you go to? Um, <clears throat> well, I guess the New York Times is one of my biggest uh, reads. Uh, in the arts world, that's a good question. I mean, uh, I always ask people what sites they go to, and it's a pretty wide ranging. The New York Times, obviously, one that gets a lot of traffic, and but today it's such a diversity. And and it look, let's face it, the the way that news is delivered today and put online, and in the speed, it's a very very different industry than it was when I got a degree in photojournalism and you yeah, got your degree. I think I read a lot of the aggregate sites that sort of put a lot of. Uh, stories out there so uh, some of the more art sites that I'm reading uh, and are these art sites based Miami centric or are they art centric? some I mean you know in the local art scene I, the Miami New Times is really have their ear to the ground and and are reporting on a lot of stuff uh, the world's best ever is a really good site. T 
WBE, the world's best ever, dot com. Mm -hmm. They are sort of the uh, Huffington Post of the art world or the contemporary scene. So coming from journalism and you now have an interest more in art than journalism, what were, who were some of the people that influenced you at early on back in the late 80s, early 90s? Or probably the same people that influenced me, but I'm just curious. You mean photographically? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, Sebastio Salgado, David Burnett, Raymond uh, Depardon, Jill Perez. So the sort of magnum aesthetic sure. guys. Yeah. And that's the aesthetic that... I use You still like those? You still follow those guys? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I look back at their older work. I don't know what they've been producing as of late. Why is that? Uh, that was a deadly question. <laughs> that was such a deadly question. Paint me into a corner, please. Well, it could be a, a multitude of reasons. I'm maybe more interested in recent history than yesterday's history. Uh it's also earlier in my career, books were more important or seemed to be less frequent. So when they would come out, it would just be like landmark moments in their career traje trajectory or so. But also there have been all the changes in, in journalism. And the, I think the relevance of those guys and how their work is treated and how it's displayed and how it's produced is completely different than it was back in the early 90s. I think that there's such a the, the rate of of the pace of the, how things are delivered today, it's almost impossible to keep up with people. That's unequivocally true. So it's, you know, and to me, it doesn't really have much to do with the book. I, th I still think if you put out a monograph, whether it's 2015 or 1995, it's a pretty monumental thing to put out a monograph. But in the meantime, you know, I don't know what Salgado's doing or I don't know what Burnett's doing particularly, but if they're on Facebook and Instagram and have a website and they're shooting, that's a single person's volume is almost impossible to keep up with, let alone the volume scale of photographers working. I don't even try. I just saw the uh, theatrical trailer for the new Salgado documentary. I guess it's about him in these last years and his Genesis project. And I saw him pull up a digital camera to his eyes and I nearly went blind from hysteria. I couldn't believe it. It was just such a terrible moment, it seems like, that the, yeah. the world's foremost documentary photographer was reduced to shooting digital pictures. Well, I think the bulk of people in the world don't have any real understanding of what that means. And I think he claimed that he did it because he was having issues with the airports, you know, x-raying his film. And I'm sure that that's an issue. We all travel with film, so we know. But I also think um, the people who would not be uh, shocked by that probably don't know the, what happens when your work goes from the analog space to the digital space. And there are positive aspects and there's negative aspects. And people don't want to talk about the negative aspects because they, want it, they don't want to appear like they're anti-technology or Bloodites or whatever. But oh, I'm anti-technology. That's okay. I'll admit that. There, there are, there's a definite difference between his work his analog work and his digital work, you know, and, and the first thing that clued me in was when I heard someone describe his show. And the first thing they said about the Genesis show was, oh, you can't tell the difference. You can't tell the difference. And that to me was the red flag that, yeah, of course you can tell the difference. And they're trying to keep things on the even page, but let's not uh, go off. The guy's an <laughs> incredible photographer. You, a lot of, a lot of your recent work is very Miami centric. You've traveled all over the place. So before we get to Miami, 
uh, well, why did you move here to begin with? And what is it about Miami that makes you stay here? And why has this become such a part of your work? My, for me, Miami is a very enigmatic place. I can never get a sense of exactly where it's headed because there's so many outside forces coming to Miami and projecting their points of view over what it should be or where it should go. I came here, well, I went to high school in Fort Lauderdale and then I went to college in the Midwest. And then when I was finished with school, at that time, South Beach was really starting to come up. And so I thought that's exactly where I want to be. It's a hot happening place. I want to be on the cusp of that. So I really lived through the whole genesis of South Beach. I saw it go from like this derelict neighborhood where old ladies and shopping carts and, you know, bums to like these gleaming high rises and super expensive shops and restaurants and, you know, the most luxurious cars, you know, the world over. I think there's all kinds of... uh, research that says there's more exotic cars in Miami than anywhere in the world. It, it feels to me, we drove around yesterday, Little Haiti, and where else were Wynwood a little bit, and some other places, and it seems to me like Miami is literally at a stage where every morning the city gets up and rips off, the, rips the canvas off the wall and starts over, because there is so much change going on here. And these lots where these massive developments are going to go. And we're driving and you're telling me that, you know, six months ago that building was such and such a facility and now it's gone and they're tearing it down and doing this and that. Whereas coming from L.A., I go to downtown Los Angeles and there's a little bit of change going on, but it's not nearly what's happening here. So driving around here yesterday, to me, it was like this felt like an absolute goldmine to be a photographer compared to where, like the West Coast. That's right. Miami is still settling its frontier aspect. I mean, it, you know, last month, President Obama uh, instituted these changes, these opening up diplomatic relations with, with Cuba. Cuba. Yeah. So th- that's going to change the face of Miami yet again. We haven't seen the results of that, but there will be some trickle down from that opening of uh, relations. M- Miami has always had a very difficult reputation and that's because you can go to what is the best restaurant in the world and then right next door to it would be the absolute worst restaurant in the world and looking at the facade you couldn't tell or you wouldn't know any different unless you're local unless you've spent the time and the research and you know made these mistakes and find out what are the good spots and you know where are the places to avoid or you know traffic or whatever way you're going to navigate the community. You know, who are the people that are shady or have, uh, you know, nefarious histories or, you know, people come to Miami to escape their lives and they try to come here and start anew. Sometimes their reputations follow them and sometimes they don't. So yesterday driving around, there was an incredible amount of street art probably more so than any any place I've seen in the United States. And I'm guessing that part of this changing canvas every day of Miami is that's one of the reasons why street art exploded here like it did and continues. Well, there's been street art here really since the 70s when the graffiti movement started. Uh, about 
seven, eight years ago, it hit a renaissance. Some artists, uh, sort of by dumb luck, decided to paint a mural in front of their gallery. And they painted that because the gallery didn't include them in their Art Basel exhibition. So mm -hmm. they figured out, okay, well, how could we still be a part of the dialogue of what's going on here? And so sort of unbeknownst to them, a piece of their work sold during that season. And then the following year, the gallerist said, well, what are you going to do in the street this time? And that's when the light bulb clicked and, you know, some groups started curating the walls and that really led to the renaissance of uh, street art and muralism in Miami now. So last year I really had my first uh, experience with some street artists when I was down in Australia and I got to see them work and talk to them and, and kind of look around. And you've done, we're going to talk about publishing here in a minute. You've done, you've done a couple of books, two, two books in two years in regards to street art in Miami. But coming from the photography side, when you were out covering these street artists, what was the reception? Did you get open arms or did you get people that were a little suspicious? And how does that play between photography and street art? But because let me preface this with something. <laughs> One thing I learned in, in Australia, which I really hadn't thought about before, was a lot of the best work that these people have ever done is immediately gone. Someone will come in and tag it or they'll paint over it or the building will be destroyed. So photography in terms of preservation seems like it would be a great thing. And some of these guys had done a really remarkable job of preserving their work and others had nothing to show. So how were you received in the field? Initially, it was a very difficult proposition. I think that more of the artists were easier to approach. I think the graffiti artists were more difficult to approach because they work in this uh, gray area. Well, it's not very gray. There's two distinct art forms. There's graffiti, which denotes vandalism and mm -hmm. is illegal, mm -hmm. and street art or muralism. Yeah. And those muralism is with permission. Sure. So the street artists were easier to photograph than the graffiti artists. And that's a, a genre within itself, a subgenre. And so from that, how did the, the first book, which is called I'm in Miami, Bitch, how did that start? Did that start from you coming up with an idea of publishing a book on graffiti, or did you just stumble across graffiti in the well, street? Um, I didn't just stumble across it because in Miami, it just out and out smacks you in the face. I mean, it's everywhere. It's unavoidable for ever. I guess, well, since 2002, every year during Art Basel, I'd always created a photo essay. And a few years ago in 2012, I thought to myself, okay, let me just hit the streets and let me figure out what photo essay I want to create this year, what statement I want to make about Art Basel. And after spending time in the streets, I found myself gravitating towards the artists who were actually creating during the Bacchanalia that is Art Basel. And so from that, I photographed more and more and met more people and just immersed myself in that scene. And at the end of it, after I processed the film and edited the photographs and put together a handmade book and started showing it, I thought, okay, I've really got something here. I want to make a statement about this particular moment in the history of Miami. And that's when I published I'm in Miami, Bitch, The Disappearing Street Art of Wynwood. 
So haven't you figured out that we're living in the age of Instagram? Like why do a book? Why, why not do a website, do an Instagram and just constantly bombard the human population with every movement you make? No, I'm making fun, but why, why do a book? Because for me, digital is to forget and film is to remember. It's about leaving a legacy, a lasting legacy. And these digital images that everybody looks at on Instagram, although some of them are very good and interesting, they don't leave a lasting legacy or dialogue. It's, it's not institutions may or may not catalog that work, but a book will be on a shelf. And so a scholar could actually go and pick that up and look through it and read it. I think it's an easier way to create a time capsule of a certain uh, movement or genre or uh, occurrence. Did you take that work to publishers or did, did I you? I did. Did you I do- had an agent in New York and we shopped it around to all these major publishers. And uh, some were encouraging, but none of them really got the gist of how sort of quickly it would need to be brought to the marketplace in order for it to be uh, current or create a dialogue around the project itself. You know, most publishing companies need 18 to 24 months to bring a book to the market. And I knew that in order for me to get in front of it, that it would have to be out before the next coming Art Basel. Yeah. So when I photographed in 2000 and in November and December of 2012, I knew that my book needed to be out in November of 2013 in order for it to capitalize yeah. on the marketplace and to get all of those people who are returning every year to remake Miami, you know, and creatively that I had to hit that holiday season or shopping season. And you've self-published a bunch of other books before, but this was a little different, right? Because you went and found a printer and sort of, you didn't use a print-on-demand service, you went and... Uh, right, all the previous books I'd ever done were print-on-demand. This was an actual offset book printed in China, you know, a few thousand copies. Uh, very early on, I had the promises of some local uh, booksellers. And because of their kindness and generosity, it really encouraged me to uh, devote a lot of resources and time and effort into uh, publishing the project. And being, be, seeing as I was in communication with you pretty much the entire time that this was going down, I mean, this is like, because we send each other really horrible text messages every day. I have um, no recollection of that. Yeah, I, I don't know what you're talking about. This was kind of like being married very much being married to the project, these books. This well, is well, it's a child. You yeah. know, you watch it get born, and you you know you hope one day to pat it on the back as it goes off to college. It's it's a process, you know, potty training and all. And so you've recently done the second book, I which did. is which is called what's it titled? The new book is called Basil Geddon, a novella, and uh, it's a play on words about Armageddon. Because when Art Basel hits Miami, it's just a cavalcade of craziness. And what did you learn from book one to book two when it came to self-publishing? Make a smaller edition. The first one was printed in what? Uh, 2,500 copies. And the second? In 500 copies. 
Because you're building scarcity. You want it to sell I, out. I want it to sell out and hopefully quickly. You know? And has the reception to the second book been as good as the first or different? Creatively speaking, yes. It's more of a collaborative, right? The second book, is it more, or that's just the, the copy you showed me was signed by each artist. So maybe that's what's, they're both collaborative books, obviously. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> For me, the most interesting, interesting aspect to these projects are the artists. And I'm trying to involve them as much as they'd be willing to be involved in these projects. So I've done collaborative artworks with them and I've hosted panels where I'm inviting artists and every week on the project site, I have a Q&A with an artist. I think I've done close to 60 of those now. Jesus. Yeah, it's kind of something. Okay, Cronkite. So this leads me back to uh, a question that we sort of touched on at the beginning, which was, hypothetically, let's, just, let's fabricate a fictitious character here, young photography student who is in school, who's studying photojournalism, who gets out and says, oh, I want to do a project on street art in Wynwood. I'm going to go get an assignment to be able to do this. Now, the reality in 2015 is that the chances of anyone getting an assignment that's going to give you the length of time you need to actually acquire these kind of images is impossible. It doesn't really happen much anymore. So what, going back to you as a photographer, not a bookmaker, the industry is a very different place than it was in, I got out of school in 92. I'm assuming you're yeah. 93, 94, something like that. 93. What is it? I mean, what's life like as a photographer, an editorial reportage photographer in 2015? Well, let me go a few questions back real quickly. I'd always traveled outside of Miami to work on projects. And I thought, well, I have this box of film and I don't need a plane ticket. I can just go to Art Basel and hit the ground running and make some great imagery. So nobody was assigning me to go there and do that. Nobody called me and said, Andrew, you know, you have to go see this. And, you know, we expect the pictures by Friday. It was just me on my own time. I, after shooting every day, I would just put the roll of film on my desk and leave it there until I knew I was totally finished. And then I sent it off to the lab. And then I waited, I don't know, probably another week or 10 days before I got that back. So... There really are not many assignments in the editorial world, not like there was 10 years ago. If you're going to want to do a project, you basically have to take it upon yourself to finance it, research it, report it. Now, personally, I've always preferred to work that way. I don't want to work for anyone anymore. Honestly, I don't. Well, I, that, I mean, that's that. true, but... But but how nice would it be to have an assignment where they say you've got three months to go shoot Basel? Which... Well, I would probably have to go to the hospital first because yeah. I would... To, to get the shock yeah, taken the sh off your face. The, the shock would just... But, but, but here's the question. Is you've, this, you've been doing this for years. You've got 20 some odd years. You've got two books of material from Basel. You would right. assume that after the third or fourth year of this, with the kind of money and influence that's thrown around at a place like Basel, that somebody would have come in and said, hey, you know what? Here's a three-month gig. Here's a, here's a two-week gig to go photograph this. But yet that doesn't happen. Why? Well, Why? I think that there's... Cameras are so prevalent, and people's uh, attention span is just so short. But, you know, I think it's also hard to monetize something like street art. It's, a, it's basically a free entity. And Miami's grappling with the sort of art overload. You know, 
it used to be when you and I were a kid and we would see a mural, it was like this auspicious occasion. But the ubiquity of murals in Miami is like everywhere. I mean, you can't drive for a minute in downtown area without seeing some sort of artwork or mural. So it's there's this tactile quality to it that seems to be missing because it's just everywhere. Mm-hmm. Is that the same thing that photography is suffering from? I'm sure it is. It's this noise that we talk about that's out in the marketplace. How are you going to get your project noticed and realized or discussed when there's eight gazillion other things happening all at the same time? When people are more interested in what's happening on their smartphone than on what's happening in front of them in real life. So in essence, what you're doing, which I think is what a lot of documentary photographers are doing today, even though you may be trying to make this a relevant topic today and a relevant book today and have book sales and be an artist, you're actually shooting for the future. Right. A friend of mine, a street artist that I met and befriended during the project, he goes, look, what you're doing is important, but nobody's going to care for 10 or 15 years. Yeah. And how does that make you feel when you're trying to make a living as a photographer? It's discouraging, (laughs) you know, but I'm not a cynic and I don't want to act like I'm put upon. And there are plenty of supporters out there for me. And I've sold, you know, close to a thousand books already, which when I tell that to people, it's a lot, they're kind of staggered that that book has sold that much. And and I was told that that book doesn't really have a market. And you don't have a full-on distribution network. You are the distribution network. Yeah, I mean, that's I'm, a very I'm important the, I'm point. I'm the chief cook, bottle washer, accountant, yeah. photographer, designer, yeah. publicist, marketing, distribution guru. I'm like a Swiss army knife. And there's, I'm sure, an upside and a downside to that. Yeah, I'm exhausted. <laughs> yeah, aren't we both? So what is, uh, what are the, what's the future plans? What's the next step? You, you've also spent seven years on a project on the Panama Canal. And now we've heard rumblings that the Chinese and the Nicaraguans are ready to to throw the dice again on a canal across Nicaragua. So what's staggering about the Nicaragua project is the canal is going to be more than 150 miles wide, which is three times the size and scope of the Panama Canal. It's just gargantuan. And that country's effects on the environment could be felt around the world. And are you going to go back and keep, continue to work in Panama? I'm working on that now. I've just recently applied for some grants, and I'm uh, contacting my contacts and seeing uh, what opportunities this uh, winter and spring may hold for me. Because I'm, as I look back on that work very nostalgically and fondly, I just think there's nothing better than having boots on the ground and making pictures of real life as it unfolds the the history that's going down there is you know for that country it's it's a cataclysmic point in its history because there'll be pre-canal expansion and post-canal expansion Mm -hmm. especially post-canal expansion with these rivals in nicaragua and mexico with these land trains or all of these people are figuring out, all of these uh, multinational corporations are trying to figure out how to get their goods to the East Coast 
of America from Asia faster, you know, cheaper and safely. What's the one thing you don't have that you really wish you had? And that could be time, resources, money, equipment. What is it? Yes. All, all the above. <laughs> yeah, pretty much everything you just listed. And, you know, uh, the, to- the time is, is so important. And people are like, why is that guy just standing in the corner with his camera? He doesn't look to be doing anything. You know, I read about Eugene Smith when he went to basically any project he ever did. For days or a week, he just hung out in those neighborhoods or with those subjects before he even picked his camera up. And I don't have that kind of luxury, but I think about that process all the time. So the time is paramount. Uh, And then, of course, the money to be able to support my family while I'm gone, plus pay for the trip itself. It's like... It's a double It's a double more. You know, I feel like for the last 20 years of my life, I've had double mortgages because, you know, I have my home life and my professional life and I have to support all of those things because it rains so much in Miami and living out of a box, I don't think would work in the long term. No, I've seen it. It looks definitely like a a challenging scenario. Okay. What's the, if you're going to, I'm an 18 year old kid and I I think I want to be a photographer. What what are you going to tell me? Stay in school. Get your master's. In? Well, for me, uh, I always knew I wanted to be a photographer. Lately, I'm calling myself an image maker and an artist because my discipline has changed to a large extent. Photography is still my number one focus in what I do. But I'm elaborating on that, you know, with my mixed media work, with my writing, uh, with collaborations with other artists, and even my own artwork. So diversify. Yeah, that's right. Young people, they need to be very, they need to be excellent at at least one major discipline. And then they need to be extremely proficient, if not excellent, in half a dozen other things. But you have to become known for one thing, and then people will come to you for that one thing. Once you have that success, then I would say try to conquer another uh, goal. Cool. Well, thanks for taking time to uh, speak with us today. I think I'm losing my voice after being on a cruise ship for a week and talking nonstop. I appreciate you taking the time. Great information. Yeah, thanks for having me. You you and I are going to go back out this afternoon, make some Polaroids, hopefully. And... uh, Good luck with your projects and all your future photographic endeavors. Thank you. Mm